0: This morning in our study of Genesis, we come to chapter 23. These are the words of God. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirhath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead And spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? "...so bury your dead." And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property, For a burial place. Our gracious heavenly father. We pray that you would open these events to us. That took place so many years ago. With Abraham. Striving for a burial place. That would be owned by him. For his wife Sarah. And others to come. We pray Lord open this up to us. And help us understand the application. And the encouragement and inspiration. That it should be for us. In our own day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, the occasion of our text is a sad one. It is the death of Sarah at age 127. For over 60 years that we can count up and easily document from the scriptures, and, much, and much, most likely for much longer than that, Sarah was Abraham's wife. She was his wife when God called him out of Ur on the journey to Haran, the time in Haran, and then the journey to Canaan, all of Abraham's various trials in and out of the land. Sarah was at his side. Sarah kept the commitment that Abraham had asked of her to present herself in every threatening land as being Abraham's sister instead of his wife. And twice she had been taken into the houses of powerful rulers to become their wife, and she had to be delivered by the Lord. Sarah knew what it was to wait a great deal of time on God's promises. In fact, she waited for decades. She knew what it was to carry great sadness within her because she was barren all her life. She knew what it was to despair and to conclude that she herself was the weak link and the barrier to God's promises. She knew what it was to become desperate and to panic, giving her personal maid Hagar to Abraham as wife so that Sarah, according to her plan, would essentially become the official mother of the resulting child. She knew what it was to have her plans blow up in her face, resulting in public and long-lasting humiliation. But she also knew what it was after many years for God to address her personally and personally confirm his promises to her and ultimately for her to personally trust and to believe the God who made these promises to her. She knew what it was to experience the miracle of God within her own body And so to conceive and bear a son many years after the age of childbearing. Sarah knew what it was to laugh, the empty laugh of incredulity and skepticism at God's promises. She also knew what it was to laugh the laugh of pure and sheer joy upon God's miraculous fulfillment of His promise. She knew what it was for the living God to name your son before he was ever even conceived and to name him Laughter, Isaac. As Abraham was father and patriarch, not only of the nation of Israel, but of all believers in every age, so Sarah was mother and matriarch. And so Paul uses her in Galatians 4.26 to represent the new covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the mother of all believers. So Sarah was deserving of great honor at her death, as was the living God who had sustained her and blessed her throughout her life. And yet, we hardly hear of Sarah in this passage that concerns her death. Actually, we do hear a lot about her, but not in the way that we're used to hear about someone. Almost this entire passage is taken up with negotiations over a place to bury Sarah. And so in truth, Sarah is being greatly honored in this passage, as is the one true God, But it's not conveyed in the way that we typically would do so as moderns. Now, this is not the first time in the scriptures, nor will it be the last, in which we are denied the kind of drama that we crave as moderns. We want to know primarily how did Abraham feel when his wife died? How did Isaac feel? And how did others feel who knew Sarah? Well, the Bible typically denies us that. And instead just gives us people's actions. And even that in a very understated way. Think of last week when we looked at chapter 22 where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac, And then Abraham's actions in obedience until God stayed his hand at the last second. And yet we're told nothing of how Abraham or Isaac or Sarah felt. We're just told what they did. This week we're told nothing of how Abraham or Isaac felt about the death of Sarah. We're only told that Abraham mourned her death, in verse 2, and then for the entire rest of the chapter, we are told what he did to obtain a burial site. It almost seems off topic, but in truth, God is telling us much here and how much Sarah and God are being honored if only we have the eyes to see. Now, about 20 years of time and a change of location have occurred since the events that we covered last week in chapter 22. In chapter 22, Isaac was a lad, meaning a a young man, a teenager. Now at Sarah's death, Isaac is 37 years old, based on her age of death of 127, In chapter 22, the family was living south of Hebron, another 20 or 25 miles south then, heading toward Egypt, whereas now they are living up in Hebron, which is north of Beersheba, but it's still about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And this is where Abraham, in Hebron, he becomes determined, fixed On the purpose of obtaining burial grounds, not only for Sarah, but also for himself and other members of his family going forward. And Abraham is determined to obtain this ground, not just the ability to use it, but to own it outright. So that it can never be questioned that he owns the ground. And no one else has any claim to any degree over that ground now this place hebron was a place of very special significance for abraham and sarah hebron is where abraham moved just after lot separated from him and it's where abraham built an altar of the, to the lord just outside of the town among the terebinth trees of mamre You can read about that in Genesis chapter 13, verse 18. Now, Mamre was an Amorite who was an ally and a friend of Abraham. Mamre went with Abraham when he had to go conquer the four kings of the east in order to rescue Lot and the other members of the town of Sodom. That all occurred in chapter 14. And that's still when Abraham was living in Hebron. Hebron is where God appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham believed God concerning the promised seed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And it is where God first made the covenant with Abraham. Hebron is where God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham and made the covenant of circumcision with him in chapter 17. Hebron is also where God changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah and told Abraham that the promised seed would not be Ishmael, born of Hagar, but Isaac, who would be born of Sarah at age 90. That is in chapter 17. Hebron is also where God again appeared to Abraham and reiterated the promises to him concerning Isaac, who would be born of Sarah. But this time, God did it in such a way that he made sure that Sarah was listening. And this was the first time that Sarah laughed, kind of the empty laugh of incredulity at hearing God's promise. And he confronts her saying, why did you laugh? And she is afraid and she denies it and says, I did not laugh. And God says, oh, but you did. And so the whole theme of this promised son, Isaac, which means laughter, is God basically saying to, Ab- to Sarah in a very personal way, I'm going to teach you how to laugh. I'm going to teach you what that means. Hebron is where God told Abraham of his intent to destroy Sodom and allowed Abraham to intercede for Lot and for any righteous within the city. That's in chapter 18. Hebron is where ultimately Abraham and Sarah have returned after living for a number of years down in Beersheba. Hebron is where Sarah and the Lord's providence has died. And Hebron is where Abraham is determined to own outright a burial ground for Sarah and for others of his family as well. Hebron is where Abraham himself will be buried. Hebron is where Isaac and his wife Rebekah will be buried. Hebron is where Jacob and his wife Leah will be buried. And so you see this burial ground becomes a testimonial site. It's like a a monument to the faith of Abraham and Sarah, to God's promises, his kingdom promises to come. The burial ground, indeed, will be the only part of the promised land that Abraham himself owns. It will not be for several hundred more years that Abraham's descendants will return here and will begin to conquer all the promised land under Joshua. This burial ground is the only part that Abraham himself actually ever owns. Notice how the text keeps specifying that Hebron is in the land of Canaan. It does that in verse two. Does that in verse nineteen. It's, it wants you to know that the Hebron is in the land of Canaan. Beersheba, where they live for a number of years, is down near the border where Canaan starts running into Egyptian control territory and Philistine control territory. But Hebron is definitely within Canaan proper. And so it keeps en- emphasizing Hebron is in the land of Canaan, it's in the promised land. All the rest will come under Moses and Joshua. So obtaining this ground is not going to be an easy task for Abraham because he is, in his own words, a foreigner and a visitor among them. Verse 4. That means, the word visitor means that he's a transient He's an alien who is living within the land, but he moves around. He was at Hebron earlier, then he goes to Beersheba, then he goes to other places. He's down in Egypt for for a while. He is transient. In other words, he has no property rights or any other rights that would go with citizenship. The only well, he doesn't have any rights, but the, the only thing that he can receive in that land is by the good graces of the people and their leaders. So Abraham needs the support of the local citizens of Hebron and of their leaders if he hopes to be able to acquire this land. That's why we see Abraham addressing the people of the land. You can see that in verse 7, also in verses 12 and 13. He's addressing the local citizens of Hebron. It also refers to him addressing the sons of Heth, verse 3 and verse 10. That's the leaders of the people. These are Hittites, and that's what that means, sons of Heth. And you also see the leaders being further described in verses 10 and 18 as those who entered at the gate of his city. What's being said there is that the leaders would gather at the gate of the city of Hebron for the purpose of conducting official business, court, and so forth. And so in his quest to own this land, we first see Abraham in verses 3 and 4 appealing to the people of Hebron and their leaders for permission, first of all, just to bury Sarah in their land. That's where he starts. Just get permission to bury her in their land. Now here we see a favorable response. The, the leaders respond that though Abraham is a foreigner and he doesn't have any rights, Nevertheless, he is greatly respected. He is called a mighty prince, literally prince of God. You are a prince of God among us. And so he is granted um, the ability to use any one of their burial places. He can't acquire it, but he can certainly use any one he wants to bury Sarah. You can see that in verses five and six. Now that's gracious That's a good start, but that's not what Abraham is seeking here. You see, if he receives anything as a gift, then it will be subject to future stipulations. And it will make him beholden to the one giving him the gift. So Abraham is intent on owning this outright. So we see Abraham, it says that he stood and bowed himself before the people. Now, the custom of that time is if you were having negotiations, you would conduct that from a seated position. So the citizens and their leaders and Abraham are all seated so that they can talk through this business. But then we see Abraham standing up and then bowing down before them. This is his way of showing them honor and acting in a humble way. He asked for the people and their leaders to intercede for him with Ephron, the son of Zohar. In other words, as a non-citizen, he has no right to even approach Ephron in this official way. He has to have citizens or their leaders go do that for him. If he can't get anybody to take up his cause, then he is dead in the water. And so uh, he, he wants to purchase the cave of Machpelah, which lies at the end of Ephron's field. And he specifies that he will pay full price for it, verses 7 through 9. So one or more of the people and their leaders, we don't know exactly who, do approach Ephron on Abraham's behalf. And Ephron then comes before the people and the leaders at the gate of the city to negotiate with Abraham. Now, at first, it seems like Ephron is trying to give um, the land and the cave to Abraham, not just the cave, but also the whole field that is connected with it in verse 11. But that is not actually what is going on. Those who are familiar with the culture, both the ancient culture, which apparently these same customs are continued today in that region of the world, great show is made of apparent largesse and generosity, but it is actually a method of bartering. Here, Ephron is saying in so many words that Abraham can't just buy the cave he must also buy the field as well, which means it's going to cost quite a bit more money. But Abraham does not balk. He doesn't hesitate. He stands up. He bows himself again before all the people. And he says that he will pay for the field as well as the cave. Verses 12 and 13. In response, Ephron again makes a great show of largesse as though he cares nothing for money while actually what he's doing is communicating to Abraham the price that he wants. Now you notice he never says this is the price that I want. He just happens to mention in passing what the the land is worth, that the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. Now that was a great amount of money. In other words, he is starting really, really high. He's not saying this is what I want. He acts like I care nothing for money, but here's what the land is worth. That's the way it works. Now, of course, he assuming Abraham is going to try to dicker him down some to lesser the amount, but Abraham doesn't. He seizes on the moment. He simply weighs out the silver right there in front of everyone in verse 16. He basically says done. Done. Weighs out the silver and gives it so that Ephron cannot back out. The point is, Abraham has the money. His goal is not to get the best price or even necessarily to get a fair price. His goal is to acquire land in the promised land that he owns free and clear. It's not about just getting a little patch to bury someone. It's about acting in faith upon God's promise and making his wife, Sarah, part of that, even in her death. Now, do you see how these events, when you understand them, do you see how much Sarah is being honored in this? And we actually learn a whole lot more about how Abraham felt about Sarah and the promises of God, because they're all caught up together And we actually learn a whole lot more about how he honors his wife and the promises of the Lord by what he does, not statements about how he felt. So let's take a deeper look then at what lies behind Abraham's fixed determination here to acquire this land. We gain insight from Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Now that language is very similar to what we see in our text in Genesis chapter 23 verse 4 when Abraham tells the townsfolk that he is a foreigner and a visitor. It continues on. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now, this is language that is typically taken by the evangelical church of which we are part to mean that Abraham was really focused on heaven, not on earth. He was focused on heaven as opposed to earth. But let's go on. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Verse 13, these all, Abraham, Sarah, died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Again, language very similar to Abraham's in Genesis 23, verse 4. Verse 14, For those who say such things declare plainly that they are seeking a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, in other words, their original homeland in Ur, they would have had opportunity to go back there, But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Again, language typically understood by the evangelical church to mean that Abraham and Sarah were focused on going to heaven, not building an inheritance in the earth. And yet, how is this heavenly focused faith that Hebrews 11 talked about, how is it manifested in Genesis 23, which it's clearly referring back to? That heavenly focused faith is manifested by Abraham being absolutely determined to acquire not just use, but to get ownership of a piece of Hebron, a piece of the promised land. So how does this heavenly mindedness and earthly stakeholding, how does that fit together? Well, first of all, we need to remember that the promised land of Canaan, while it was a real piece of land, that was really given to God's people in the Old Testament, it was also a picture of the whole world, which is the inheritance that is promised to Christ and to his people. In Romans 4, verse 13, Paul refers to the promise that Abraham received, that he would be heir of the promised land of Canaan. But look what Paul does to the promise. For the promise that he, Abraham, would be heir of the world, he takes the word land, which is what the promise actually said in the Old Testament, referring to Canaan, and and Paul changes the word to cosmos. Now, how can Paul do that? when the promise pertained to the land of Canaan. How can Paul change it? Because he understood that the land of Canaan, while it was a real historical land that was really given, all of that was a picture of the whole world and all the nations being given to Christ and to his people. Second, we have to understand that the heavenly mindedness that Hebrews 11 is talking about it's not the heavenly mindedness that, that focuses on heaven instead of earth. But it is the heavenly mindedness that seeks to have the kingdom of heaven come on earth. You see the difference in that kind of heavenly mindedness. Just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it talks about the heavenly city of God that he is prepared for all believers. And he says to the new covenant believers of the first century, you are there. You have come to the heavenly city. Look at it. Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn... Who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. Again, the heavenly mindedness that is being lauded in Hebrews chapter 11 is talking about not focusing on heaven as opposed to earth, but the kingdom of heaven coming on earth, conquering the earth by the word of God, making all nations Christ's disciples, even as Jesus has commanded in the Great Commission. So Abraham was showing his heavenly mindedness when he did everything in his power to obtain this little piece of land in the promised land, the kingdom land, as it were. And that's why it was so important for Sarah to be buried there, and later for Abraham to be buried there, and for Isaac and Rebekah to be buried there, and for Jacob and Leah to be buried there. And that's why Joseph made the Israelites swear that they would not bury him in the land of Egypt but they would carry his bones with them to the promised land and bury him there. These are all very visible, tangible ways of them applying the biblical heavenly mindedness of laying hold of the earth as part of the kingdom of heaven coming here. That's the direction of the kingdom of heaven in the Bible. Not we go there, but it comes here. That's the direction of the kingdom of heaven. So all this earthly action bearing testimony to the promises of God concerning the kingdom, spreading like leaven as it is Jesus promised it would, it will spread like leaven throughout the whole earth, bringing all under the kingship of Christ. Now let's add to that so that we have an even deeper understanding of these matters that the Bible does not speak of our alien and pilgrim status being completely removed until the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, is here in all its fullness and power, which occurs when death, the final enemy, is conquered in the resurrection of life and the renewing of the earth. Look at First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11. Now the occasion here is this is the prayer of David just before his death when the throne is being passed to his son Solomon and the building of the temple is about to commence. David prays to God, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours, and yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Verse 14 Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. Now listen to the language. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. You notice how our alien and pilgrim status, in the words of David, are not connected to being on earth. It's not being on earth that makes us aliens and pilgrims. It's the fact that we are removed from earth by death. We are claimed by death. It's the fact that this earth which God has given is not in the hands of the righteous and is not free of death. So that's where it's looking. That's the effect of the kingdom of God. It takes the earth out of the hands of the unrighteous, places it in the hands of the believers and the righteous, and then puts down the final enemy, which is death. The last vestiges of our alien and pilgrim status will finally cease upon the resurrection of life and the deliverance of the earth from corruption and decay. Look at Romans 8, verse 11. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be in us, that is, in the resurrection of life. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Of God. In the meantime, for us today, we need to exhibit the same kind of heavenly mindedness that we see Abraham exhibiting in Genesis chapter 23. So while we have as new covenant believers, we have the inaugurated church, we have the heavenly Jerusalem among us. And we have the kingdom of God that has entered the world with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We have kingdom life being lived out in the earth. We are heaven to the world. We are the kingdom of God to the world. That is the commission of the church. And we have Christ's promise that his kingdom is going to grow like leaven throughout the earth. In the meantime, we, like Sarah Sarah and Abraham, must continue to hold the promises and to look forward to their complete fulfillment, which will likely be many years and centuries even after we are long gone. So what do we do now? Well, we follow Abraham and Sarah's example. We see the fulfillment of the kingdom promises afar off, we take assurance in them because God does not go back on his promises. We embrace and cling to those promises while living and dying in such a way that we in every way possible confess and bear testimony to that kingdom hope. That does not mean that we float through this life until we can die and go to heaven where Home is, Abraham was an alien and a pilgrim, a foreigner and a visitor, not because he didn't belong here. That was the land promised to him. It wasn't because he didn't belong there. It was because unbelievers occupied and controlled the land he was promised. The conquest and victory of the kingdom of God changes all that. And that's where he was looking forward to by faith. He did not respond to Sarah's death by saying, This world doesn't matter. And soon I will join Sarah in heaven. No, instead, he said, God willing, I am getting a piece of this land. We are staking a claim in God's name. Me and Sarah and our descendants because we believe the promises of God. That's the kind of heavenly mindedness we need as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.